The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. You know, this lack of aid will only exacerbate those political and societal tensions and sort of cause chaos in the ranks of the Ukrainian army. And so you could see cascading failures over the course of 2024. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 8th, 2024. It's been a wild and woolly week on Capitol Hill with respect to the border, Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and a lot of other stuff. As we recorded yesterday, the Senate was preparing to vote both on the apparently doomed supplemental deal, including border security provisions, and on one without them. Joining me in the virtual jungle studio was Molly Reynolds, Lawfare Senior Editor, and Eric Charamella of the Carnegie Endowment of International Peace. We got together to discuss the congressional politics and also the situation in Ukraine that drives the need for congressional action. We talked about how the border and the Ukraine supplemental got wrapped up together, how they're being disaggregated, whether there is a path forward for Ukraine aid now that the Senate has killed the compromise. And we talked about what's going on on the ground in the Ukrainian lines and what would happen if the United States doesn't act. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 8th. Molly Reynolds and Eric Charamella on the Ukraine Supplemental. So, Molly, we are recording this at perhaps the most awkward time on Wednesday afternoon to record about this subject. Give us a sense of the lay of the land right now, which will, in fact, be different by the time anybody listens to this. Sure, it could be worse. We could be recording it while the vote was happening. Uh, but uh, the current lay of the land is that over the weekend, the Senate, specifically um, Senators Lankford, Murphy, and Cinema, released the text of a long-awaited compromise related to um, changes to immigration law. So we'll sort of call this the border proposal. They'd been working on this for several months. 
under the understanding that if they could come to an agreement on bipartisan agreement on language that would make changes to immigration law, that would be packaged together with uh, legislation that would provide additional assistance to Ukraine, to Israel, and to Taiwan, and that that package would move through the Senate. Um, Within a 24 to 48 hours, it became clear that that immigration language was in fact a non-starter with a sufficient number of Senate Republicans that even Minority Leader McConnell, um, who, among other things, had kind of deputized Lankford to try and reach this agreement, was certainly sort of supportive of his efforts to negotiate a deal um, and is certainly very personally supportive of additional assistance to Ukraine. Um, Even he has announced that it's clear that this particular proposal will not become law at this particular moment in time. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer indicated that uh, despite these announcements from the Republican conference, he still plans to hold a procedural vote on the full uh, four-part package, so the um, measure that has both the immigration language as well as the assistance to Ukraine, to Israel, and to Taiwan uh, that is scheduled to take place later this afternoon. Given that Republicans in the Senate have said that they do not plan to vote for that procedural motion in sufficient numbers for it to pass, uh, Schumer has also indicated that after the vote on the four parts, they will hold a vote that takes the border-related language, the the changes to immigration law. We can talk more about kind of what is on the table, what was on the table there. But he'll hold another procedural vote immediately after that on just the spending pieces. That vote is is expected, at least as of this moment, to get the necessary support from Republicans to invoke cloture. I think it may lose um, a handful of Democratic votes, particularly around over concerns related to the Israel piece of the package. But that vote is also scheduled to take place later this afternoon. All right. So by the time somebody listens to this, what we expect the lay of the land to look like is that the great compromise of a border security package for the supplemental funding will be dead in the Senate, but the Senate will have moved forward precisely the package of supplemental funding that was originally conditioned on the border compromise only without the border compromise. Is that is that fair? Uh, yeah, I'd say that that is, if I were a betting woman, that that's where we'll be when uh, folks are listening to this podcast. But that package, which would then be on its way back to the House, has no immediate prospect of receiving a vote in the House, right? That's correct. Probably not as a standalone piece of legislation. We can talk more about kind of a more medium term, uh, where medium term is weeks as opposed to days, um, trajectory for uh, some of this stuff a little bit later. But uh, there's no indication that um, Speaker Johnson would 
bring up exactly what the Senate may well advance today. It's worth noting that the vote today is a procedural one and not one on ultimate passage. Um, and that would um, that would come later. So fair to summarize the situation, assuming we're right about where this is going today, that the Senate, after proceeding on the basis that aid for Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan was contingent on the border compromise, now drops the border compromise and can proceed on the basis of the supplemental alone. The House, however, will not proceed on either the basis of the border compromise or the individual supplemental components grouped together and yesterday failed to pass the Israel package by itself. So it sort of says no to, in different ways, says no either to aggregating or disaggregating these components. Yeah. I mean, one way to describe this is that um, what is now plan B for the Senate is what was plan A several months ago before they started down this road of tying assistance to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan to the border. And the House has not reached the point of really having a plan. All right. So now let's uh, lift ourselves out of Washington and talk about the situation in Kiev that is partly driving this debate. Eric, the noises from Ukraine over the last few months as this supplemental has gotten mired down in domestic politics have been increasingly panicked and uh, increasingly dire about how bad the situation is and how urgently needed this aid is. So first of all, how much of that is hyperbole? That is, how how dire is the situation? And secondly, what are the components of uh, the aid package that is now tied up with this uh, immigration compromise that was A, required, and B, now unacceptable? Thanks, Ben. I really don't think it is hyperbole to say this is extremely urgent. Since the last time I came on the podcast in December after my trip to Kiev, you know, the situation has deteriorated continually on the front lines. The Russians have significant artillery advantages uh, over the Ukrainians, both because uh, their own defense industrial base has mobilized faster than the West's to be able to supply additional ammunition. And because they've gotten significant supplies from places like North Korea, in addition to drones from Iran that they're using to, you know, launch at Ukrainian cities, um, terrorize the Ukrainian population and overwhelm Ukrainian air defenses. So, you know, it's it's become even worse. Um, there's widespread reports of Ukrainian commanders being forced to ration munitions, you know, firing smoke rounds, things like that. Very desperate situations in, in certain areas along the front lines where the Russians have continued to make these concerted, localized pushes. Um, there hasn't been a major loss of territory. Uh, the Ukrainians are still holding their ground, but it's getting, uh, you know, increasingly tenuous. So it is really urgent at this point that we have some amount of American uh, military aid going to Ukraine in 2024. The reason being, even though Europe has stepped up in a significant way with its aid, 
The recent 50 billion euro package was primarily for budgetary support, although each individual European country has really, you know, moved to to plus up its support, Germany doubling its military aid to Ukraine from four to eight billion euro in, in 2024 and other nations doing the same. The issue is that the European defense industrial base and, you know, individual allied stockpiles are just nothing close to what the United States uh, has on hand and can ramp up in the you know, foreseeable future. So the pace at which, you know, Ukraine is expending munitions, even for, you know, basic defense, you know, with prepared defenses and fortifications, uh, is still more than probably what the Europeans can supply in a hypothetical scenario where we went to zero. So how responsive is this aid package to the situation? That is, if Congress were to get its shit together and do the right thing this afternoon and send the president a supplemental, president signs the supplemental, how quickly does $60 billion um, resupply the Ukrainian lines realistically? So we have to kind of break down the $60 billion. So first of all, part of it is for direct budgetary support, similar to what the Europeans just passed in their four-year 50 billion euro package. And that's really to keep the lights on uh, for the Ukrainian government, civil servant salaries and things like that, to be able to provide basic services, of course, because in, in any war, and especially in a war of attrition, if you can't sustain the war effort you know, from the rear, then the front lines obviously collapse. So that's urgent. That's about, you know, seven to eight billion, uh, at least in the Senate compromise language that, um, as Molly explained, has been ported over to this new national security only proposal. So the rest of the 50 billion is for military and intelligence support. Part of that is for what's called presidential drawdown authority, which allows the president to pull from U.S. stocks. And then the money actually is to uh, backfill those stocks with new production. And so that's urgent. And, you know, that could start to be put in motion within weeks. As you know, if listeners have seen the kind of 20 something tranches of anywhere between a couple hundred million to a couple billion in aid, you know, every few weeks since the start of the full scale invasion, that's presidential drawdown gradually being used as the Defense Department finds weapons and ammunition in our stockpile and says, this is what Ukraine needs now for the next few weeks and sort of plans on an urgent uh, and ongoing basis. That's about 20 billion. Another 12 to 15 billion is uh, for what's called Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, which is for new production, for entering into contracts with American producers uh, for new weapons and munitions that you know are going to be coming online in coming years. And so, uh, again, this is all far cry from, uh, you know, a blank check to Ukraine. Much of this money is going back into the U.S. defense industrial base, either to backfill um, the U.S. weapons pulled from stockpiles or to to manufacture these new systems that uh, Ukraine is going to be purchasing in the future. So, you know, and on that on that USAI point, we have been doling out contracts um, and, and, and finalizing them worth about $18 billion over the past two years. I mean, that USAI component of the initial supplemental budgets was there. And so much of that is for production that hasn't come online yet. So even in the worst case scenario where, where Congress 
does refuse to um, appropriate any additional funds, there is this uh, sort of latent equipment and munitions that has already been put under contract that once it's produced will end up going to Ukraine. It's just not enough and not at the on the time scale needed for you know the kind of urgent and deteriorating situation on the front line. All right, so that is super helpful. So basically, I mean, it, it's fair to say neither the administration nor the Ukrainians are hyping the direness of this situation. It's Congress is actually facing a choice. Do you continue to fund the defense of Ukraine? And if you don't, the lines and the capacity of the Ukrainians to defend the current lines and their cities will begin deteriorate or is already deteriorating and will can be expected to continue to deteriorate at at some accelerating rate. Is that f- fair summary? I think that's a totally fair summary. I mean, it's, you know, this is as close as we get to kind of cause and effect in in foreign policy. It's not going to be that, you know, Americans open up their you know, news one day and find, you know, massive swaths of Ukrainian territory overrun by Russians. It's going to be, you know, a slow, but, a, you know, as you said, accelerating pace of deterioration. And again, that's because of running out of weapons, but then that has cascading effects because it hits soldiers' morale. And, you know, you can see um, defections and soldiers defying orders and whatnot. I mean, Ukraine has significant manpower challenges too. There's this other political debate going on now that we haven't talked about yet about a new mobilization law and about tensions between the civilian and military administrations about, you know, how to prosecute the war going forward. And that, you know, this lack of aid will only exacerbate those political and societal tensions and sort of cause chaos in the ranks of the Ukrainian army. And so you could see cascading failures over the course of 2024. And just to be clear, when when you say manpower shortages, let me just give, give a little bit of data in explanation of that. Ukraine is a country of 44 million people, and this is a 700-mile-long front. And Russia is a country of 130 million people, uh, or thereabouts. And so if, if it comes down to a question of how many people do, can you throw at a 700 mile line? Uh, the Russians are just in a position to throw a lot more people at the problem than the Ukrainians are. And they are in a position to absorb a much higher casualty rate. Is, is there more to the manpower issue? I mean, there's obviously more to the manpower issue than that, but is that the, the sort of crux of it? Yeah, I mean, that's the crux of it. And actually, the ratio is, is frankly, um, even worse than what you described, because Ukraine was a country of 44 million people. And that was before it's, you know, part of its territory was annexed back in 2014. And then now 20% of its territory is under Ru- Russian occupation, not to mention millions of refugees who have who have gone abroad. So, I mean, there, there aren't really good estimates now, but realistic kind of ballparks are that it's somewhere in the low 30s. And, you know, the Russian population is somewhere in the mid 140s. So we're talking, a, a, you know, one to four or one to five uh, ratio in terms of, you know, the manpower pool. But what you have to add on to that is that in the Russian context, 
there's essentially no political constraints on Putin to keep mobilizing, you know, Russians. I wouldn't say no constraints, but there are significantly fewer constraints than in Ukrainian society where there is a vibrant debate and there's, there is politics. And again, even though there is a legal regime of martial law, um, there's criticism of the president and there's a debate about whether the strategy is working. In Russia, you have an authoritarian system and people mostly salute. And Putin has been able to draw on mostly poor communities in ethnic minority you know, regions of Russia to recruit them, you know, prisoners and whatnot. And so, again, Putin hasn't wanted to go full mobilization because that would be, you know, probably a bit too much of a shock to Russian society. But his ability to, you know, dig into the well and, and you know, find another couple hundred thousand Russian troops um, to fill the ranks every six months. I mean, that's much easier for him to do than for Ukraine, given the differences in their political systems. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me. And it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. 
And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. All right, so Molly, coming back to all of this sounds to me completely compelling, you know, the sort of thing that would anger you enough to make you uh, show up on the National Mall and uh, shine lights and demand that Congress do something. But... Congress has been sitting on this uh, supplemental for, I guess, uh, since it got left out of the continuing resolution that kept the government open uh, several months ago. And so my question to you is how much of that is because of actual opposition to funding the Ukrainians? Uh, the sort of Tucker in Moscow effect, right? The Marjorie Taylor Greene, Donald Trump stuff. How much of it is is the border holding it up, which seemed like that was the principal explanation until this weekend? And how much of it is just general dysfunction in a caucus that barely has a minority and is not especially adept at corralling it or governing what like what's the weight of the factors that are preventing this issue from being addressed sure so i think it's a mixture of what you've identified i think in terms of sort of genuine actual opposition to additional assistance to ukraine that 
is the position of a block within the um, Republican conference, um, especially in the House, but also um, in the Senate. And I think importantly, in the Senate uh, Republican conference, there does seem to be kind of a, a willingness to maybe cover for the House is one way to describe it. So even among some, I think, Senate Republicans who are kind of more in the middle on this question. They're not firm opponents, but they're also not kind of McConnell-level champions of additional assistance to Ukraine. There's a, a willingness, probably a politically motivated willingness, to just go along with what their colleagues in the House, which is the one part of the, the government right now where Republicans do have a very slim but a majority, so I think there's some of that. Um, as long as nobody is having surgery. Right, right. There's some of that in addition to um, some um, actual opposition. I think another thing that has made this more challenging is the fact that Eric's entire account of how dire things are in Ukraine notwithstanding from the perspective of the U.S. Congress, there is not the same kind of hard single deadline with big costs for inaction as there is for when a continuing resolution comes uh, runs out and they need to vote to keep the government open. And I think when we think about, you mentioned back in the end of September, when there was a vote on a continuing resolution to keep the government open through mid-November, that many of us um, for a while thought would include some additional assistance to Ukraine. It was pretty clear that there were probably votes for a continuing resolution plus Ukraine money in the Senate. The clock kind of ran out on that as a possibility of a strategy. We got to the point where we were, you know, like 12 hours away from a partial government shutdown, and the Senate was faced with the choice of accepting a proposal that kept the government open that had come over from the House but had no assistance for Ukraine, or approving a, a measure that had assistance for Ukraine with the uh, continuing resolution, and they chose Senate Republicans. Basically, the center of gravity in the conference was such that they didn't want to jeopardize shutting down the government over going to the mat with the House on um, Ukraine assistance. And so basically enough Republicans told McConnell they didn't want to have that fight. And so McConnell said, okay, we're going to vote um, to keep the government open. And so it's that sort of the interaction between what Congress sees as really hard deadlines for itself and its activities um, versus what it sees as hard deadlines, I think, vis-a-vis Ukraine. So the slow degradation of a 700-mile line and the increased pace of Russian rocket attacks on, a Ukrainian, on Ukrainian cities just isn't enough of a moment, right? It, it, because it kind of happens in slow motion and doesn't have you know, the deadline component, like a government shutdown, it's it's more of a degradation of a sort that Congress can kind of ignore. Yeah, I think I think that's a um, a good way to describe it. And kind of just given the overall politics writ large within the two chambers and across the two chambers, it's very hard to do anything at all right now. And it's certainly very hard to do anything unless Congress feels like the consequences 
for itself of not acting are quite high. Yeah. And I would also mention, you know, Ben, your point that kind of the the degradation of the line is not enough. I think also there's been a a misperception or misunderstanding about the state of the war, particularly since the top, you know, Ukrainian general, uh, General uh, Zaluzhny, in his Economist article back in November, you know, tried to describe the state of warfare and this tag of stalemate was put on it. And so everyone started talking about stalemate. And the reality is something actually worse than stalemate, because the stalemate, you know, is where neither side can really do anything to change the situation on the board. But what we're actually seeing is a steady degradation such that by the end of the year, Russia will be in a significantly better position if there's no aid. And so, you know, military analysts like, uh, you know, my colleagues, Mike Kaufman and Dara Massico and, and Jack Watling at Rusi in London have sort of made this point that stalemate lulls you into believing that sort of everything's fixed and nothing will change. But actually, the trajectory is far more dangerous if we if we let things stand without any aid. So, Molly, one, I, I suppose, complacent response is, hey, the Republican tying this to a border security bill turned out to be something of a bluff. That is... You demand that the border be tied to it, and the administration says, fine, okay, we'll include a lot of border money in the supplemental. And then you say, no, 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 it's not border money we need, it's border policy change. And so then there is a lengthy negotiation that produces a bipartisan compromise reflecting border policy change. And then you say, no, just kidding, we think the president has all the authority that he needs without any bill. And so we're against it. And the result is, if if your prediction is correct, that the Senate will today move the supplemental money without any border stuff at all. Uh, why shouldn't I say, well, that's where the House is going to have to end up too, because they're sort of doing the same thing that the Senate is doing. That is, you demand border policy change as the cost of moving this thing, then you turn out to be head faking about the border policy change. Maybe at that point, Mike Johnson just has to do what the Senate just did, which was to move the money without the border stuff. Is that plausible or are the politics of the House just that different from the politics of the Senate? Yeah, I mean, I am somewhat skeptical that um, Speaker Johnson will move this supplemental package without the border and immigration uh, policy changes on its own. He has, you know, a sizable block of his conference that is not in favor of additional assistance to Ukraine, he would probably have to move the package via what's called suspension of the rules, which would mean that it would need two-thirds support in the House. I mean, it might get there. I don't know how many Democrats in the House would vote against it on the basis of the Israel component. The uh, I believe the Biden White House has come out today in support of the Ukraine plus Israel plus Taiwan proposal after issuing a veto threat on the Israel only money. But 
to my mind, really the place that we should be looking if we think that there's a future for this supplemental is to see if it can get attached to a forthcoming broader spending deal in the House. So the um, current temporary measure funding the government runs out about a month from now. It's a little unclear where they are on trying to get to an agreement that would fund the government for the rest of the year. But if they can get there, if they can develop a large omnibus or say like two minibus proposals that contain all of the other spending bills, the regular spending bills for the rest of the fiscal year, I think there's a possibility that this additional security supplemental funding gets attached to that. And one of the reasons that that's plausible, at least to me, is because the same Republicans, I mean, not to a T, but by and large, the same Republicans who are going to vote against a standalone Ukraine plus Israel plus Taiwan supplemental are also the same Republicans who are going to vote against a large deal that funds the government. You don't have those people on your whip count as yeses for the underlying agreement on spending. So if that's true, adding something else that they also hate doesn't necessarily lose you votes, or it certainly doesn't lose you their votes. Right. It kills two birds with one stone. Yes. Now, will this work? Would some number of Republicans get so mad at Mike Johnson if he did this that they would threaten to depose him again? I don't know. Um, you've heard a little bit of like mumbling from House some House Democrats who are saying, you know, if there's a deal on spending and if Johnson is willing to do um, the supplemental, we would help back him up if he faced a challenge from the floor. I have no idea if that's where we'll get to. But I do think that that's how we should be thinking about this question of the future of the supplemental. So Eric, if I were Ukrainian and I heard Molly say maybe in a month, I would tear out what was left of my hair. How timely is a month from now if you discount it with the probability that, you know, by by whatever possibility that it won't happen. Is that good enough? I mean, they, they need it now and they will need it even more so in a month. The war is not going to be over in a month. So the sooner the better. You know, I think it was Ukraine's foreign minister that at some point quipped today that you know, this whole aid debate was like a thrilling detective story, and it was very confusing, and you never know what's going to happen. They're trying to project, you know, some confidence that Congress will come through and that everything will be fine. Obviously, they have a, you know, a population to soothe and reassure. But, you know, again, uh, this can't happen soon enough. And if it takes another month, um, so be it. It's better than going the rest of the calendar year without a single dollar more in American assistance, which is just untenable. So, Molly, when I look at this picture, I don't know if detective story is the metaphor I would use for it. It, it seems to me almost more like a jigsaw puzzle or a, you know, a Rubik's cube where you're kind of trying to find you sort of believe there's a formula where you can make the picture work and you're trying to to find the path to it. How confident are you that there is a path or is this just a puzzle with enough missing pieces and also enough, you know, 
Donald Trump occasionally reaching his hand in and grabbing some of the pieces and taking them like he did with the border security deal that like maybe this just is something Congress can't get done right now. Is that, do you think that's possible or is the, or, or is this a question of, of, you know, the deal is there to put together if somebody can put it together? It's a good question. I think it's possible that there is no real way to unlock additional assistance for Ukraine at this point. And maybe to put it more precisely, that the relative importance of unlocking additional assistance to Ukraine gets swamped by other issues. So here I'd sort of go back to this, what I said before about what happened at the end of September, which was basically when presented with the choice of shut down the government and have a fight about additional assistance to Ukraine then, or keep the government open and try to fight another day on Ukraine, they took the second option. And so, and I think in some ways that says something to us about, you know, even uh, Ukraine has some very powerful and very loud congressional champions, and I don't use loud, you know, pejoratively. There, I mean loud um, to the to the benefit of the the Ukrainians. But if they if they get rolled by um, other members, there's only so much that they can do. At the same time, part of why I sort of sketched out the scenario that I did is that you know, in a Congress where Everything has been kind of a tooth and nail fight, even above normal levels for um, the contemporary U.S. Congress. Uh, the things that they have managed to do are they have managed to do when it's come down to keeping the government open or avoiding other really catastrophic fiscal consequences, like when they ultimately came to an agreement to increase the debt limit in the sort of early summer of last year. And so, you know, I think if there's a train, it's the train that will hopefully be um, an all-government uh, spending agreement in about a month. But that train could leave the station without assistance for Ukraine. Right. Sort of a repeat of September. Yeah. So no discussion of the uh, subject of congressional dysfunction is complete without mention of a discharge petition. And so I want to ask about what happens if we really stagnate here and, you know, Republicans can't take yes for an answer on the border stuff, but they also can't move a, uh, the supplemental without the border stuff, you end up in a land where somebody will or may try to force uh, consideration in the House of one of the Senate passed versions by discharge petition. Molly, is that fantasy or is that a realistic option here? And how would it work? I would say it's like one step up from fantasy, but nowhere, I would not categorize it as a realistic option. I mean, I think the 118th Congress has um, really challenged our sense of what is and is not fantasy um, in the in the House. You know, we're recording this the day after um, House Republicans brought a vote on impeachment articles for DHS Secretary Mayorkas to the floor without a firm whip count and lost the vote, which is just not something that happens. So um, all that said, 
The challenges to a discharge petition based strategy here are sort of two. One is that it takes a bunch of time. Um, it's cumbersome. And I mean, if I take Eric's point earlier, it's that the Ukrainians need help now. They needed help four months ago. Um, they're still going to need help in four months um, and in eight months and so on and so forth. And so in some sense, the the, the from their perspective, I don't want to Obviously, time matters, but from Congress's perspective, you know, the closer we get to the election, the harder it's going to be to do really anything, including move something like a discharge petition. But I think the more consequential reason that it's kind of a tricky prospect here is because you need a simple majority of the House to sign on to a discharge petition to bring whatever the underlying issue is out of committee, basically, and onto the floor. And I think. You know, in a world where Mike Johnson said to the the anti-Ukraine faction in his caucus, like, screw you, I'm bringing this to the floor anyway, it would get, I think, a majority of the, a simple majority of the votes in the House. We get some Republican votes, we get some Democratic votes. But I don't know that all of those same people who would vote for it would sign a discharge petition. I think that you would probably, particularly if the uh, Ukraine assistance is still paired with assistance to Israel, there are some Democrats um, on the sort of left wing of the party who might be skittish, even with the Biden administration having endorsed the proposal, would be skittish around um, advancing it with the Israel uh, language as it's currently constituted. And then more importantly, getting enough Republicans to sign on is not impossible, but is hard. it's harder to get a Republican to sign on to a discharge petition than it is to get them to vote for the thing once it's on the floor. Because signing a discharge petition is really viewed as undercutting the power of the speaker uh, to set the congressional agenda. And you know the the kinds of folks who are supportive of Ukraine in the Republican conference are also the kinds of folks who generally want to make Mike Johnson's life easier rather than harder. And so I don't uh, the numbers may not add up even before you get to the issue of the amount of time that it would take. One other procedural machination which uh, Congressman Auchincloss has has talked about from the uh, fanatically pro-Ukraine side with which I certainly identify. You know, he withheld support uh, for the last CR on the basis that it did not have uh, the Ukraine money in it and said that neither his leadership nor the Republican leadership could, should count on his vote for any future funding bill that does not have this. And uh, his explanation for it is that, you know, all the brinksmanship is being played by the sort of radical right fringe caucus. And uh, the result is that they have disproportionate power because they're willing to, you know, burn the house down every time. Whereas when Speaker Johnson needs to rely on Democratic votes, they're there for him as I understood Representative Auchincloss's position, the demo, you know, he he seemed to be arguing that the Democrats need to stop playing that game and basically say, "Hey, we're not going to support another funding deal unless it includes this." I, I take it that, that there were like two votes for that position the last time around, but is there 
Is there a brinksmanship play that the Democrats can make with Ukraine funding, or is it too low on their own priority lists for that to be effective? Yeah, I tend to think it's probably not high enough on their priority list, Um, not because uh, there aren't a lot of Democrats who uh, care about this, because I think there are, but I think particularly if we're thinking about um, the what I see is the most likely scenario for getting this done that I sketched out before, which is that it's tied to a broader spending deal, I think there aren't that many Democrats who would threaten to torpedo something that keeps the government open, keeps the government open mere months before the next election, is a vote in line with what the Biden administration will be wanting them to do um, in service of, you know, the very broad range of other things that the federal government does. Um, so I think, you know, if there were um, if there were two uh, folks in that corner of the House uh, Democratic Caucus, maybe you get a couple more than that. But I think that Again, particularly if this specific funding stream for Ukraine is tied to a broader spending deal, it's hard for me to see enough Democrats threatening to do that in order to actually have it make a huge difference in the outcome. We are going to leave it there. Eric Charamella, Molly Reynolds, thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is the exceptionally fine Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Hey, folks, this conversation about the politics of Ukraine aid, it's just going to be the most sophisticated conversation on the subject you're going to listen to. So share it on social media so others can enjoy Molly's insights in Congress and Eric's account of the Ukrainian situation without a new aid package. You know you can bring people into the light with the Lawfare Podcast. Make it happen, folks. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by the one, the only, Jen Patia. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.